We have a killer episode for you today, but before we get to the goods, I want to take some time to talk about decision making. As you know, I frequently talk about making decisions based on numbers. I strongly believe in this philosophy for a business to thrive and grow. The alternative to making decisions based on numbers is making decisions based off emotions or gut feeling. The problem with making decisions based off of emotions is that when we access that part of our brain, we're convinced our decision is the correct one. It's an echo chamber. We are 1,000% sure this is the direction we want to move forward with. That decision could be influenced by a number of factors and experiences which are relevant at that time, but maybe not the current situation. The result typically is unintended consequences that may pop up in the future. Okay, so you know where I stand when a decision must be made. Now let's talk about another option when you're faced with a decision, when both options are poor. What about doing nothing? Yep. Have you ever considered just doing nothing? I'm going to go over some examples in a minute where doing nothing may be the best alternative. But before I get to that, let's explore doing nothing. Doing nothing is hard, takes discipline, very unpopular, may negatively impact the bottom line temporarily, and it invests in the long game. All I'm saying is, if you're dealt with a situation where door A and door B suck, consider doing nothing. Let's go over some examples. First example I want to talk about is investing in a canning line. Given the events of the past 18 months, this decision is a no-brainer, right? What are the alternatives to not having a canning line? Draft beer only? Mobile canning? Crowlers? Growlers? Breweries have it existed for decades with draft-only options. It's only when the pandemic hit is when canning became so valuable. So let's get to the point. What if you decide to toe the line and do nothing? Remain 100% draft with the occasional mobile canning. I see this as a viable option for breweries who do not want to overextend themselves with debt, don't have the space, and understand their customer base well enough to sit tight. Can I bring it back to the numbers just for a minute? Mobile canning does not make sense from a money perspective if you plan to distribute that beer. Mobile canning adds between 4 and $6 per case depending on the vendor you use. Now, if you're planning on selling that beer in the tap room, then it becomes more attractive. I have spoken to many brewery owners in the past year who retrofitted their crowler machine to seam 16-ounce cans. Yes, this is an arduous process, but it was their only alternative to make the sale. Alternatives are available to get beer packaged. So at your next executive meeting, when everyone's buzzing about where's the canning line, toss out the option of doing nothing and see what alternatives come up. You will be surprised. Next example I want to talk about is dealing with a rogue partner. 
I have seen this more times than not, where a founder walks out of the company. One day they're there, next gone. It really happens. Typically, 90 days after the fallout, an email arrives asking for a buyout. It's typically an absurd, absurd amount, just asinine amount. See, that founder who walked out still owns a piece of the company, and they want to get paid, buddy. I see their point, but it just isn't that easy. What ensues is the operating founder spirals into a stress cycle, which completely occupies their mental real estate. The following questions surface. How are we going to buy them out? Where's the money going to come from? Some even call their bankers. When I get this call, I always begin with, what if we do nothing? I suggest this for a number of reasons. First, I want to consider the value of the company today versus the value of the company in five years. Second, I want to explore every opportunity available to protect the current business. Third, what events could happen to this rogue partner in the future where they would accept less? The likelihood of the third is actually high if they're an impulsive individual. To be clear, I never want to harm another person financially. Likewise, I feel it is irresponsible to reward the abandonment of duties. Regardless of the long line of issues that led up to the abrupt departure, you just don't walk out of your business. This is another example where doing nothing needs to be placed on the table. The point of my rant here today is that we are faced with decisions in our business every single day. We never want to be held hostage to those decisions that may come back to haunt us. Is doing nothing easy? Hell no, it isn't. Doing nothing is hard for all the reasons I mentioned earlier. Here's some homework for you. First, clear your desk. Please literally remove all the stacks of paper, post-its, and whatever else you have accumulating on there off the desk. Next, pull out a blank piece of paper and write down the key decisions you have looming ahead of you. For every one of those decisions, ask yourself, what would happen if we did nothing? Zero action taken. You may be surprised at the outcome. Now, on to today's episode. Today, we are talking about the rebirth of draft. The guest for today's episode is Chris Smith co-founder of Virginia Beer Company out of Williamsburg, Virginia. Chris has an interesting take on draft placements. We discuss his packaging splits pre and post-COVID. We also discuss cooperage arrangements. This one shocked the crap out of me. Chris also tells us what he did during the pandemic to position Virginia Beer Co. to capitalize on the rebirth of draft. All right, let's do it. Every little thing that we can be at, whatever it is, you know, we'll be there. Beers for everyone in society. In my opinion, the world's greatest social uniter. I mean, we had people in tears when they would take their first sip. They hadn't had a proper pint for 20 years, you know. Well, Jen, meet Chris. Chris, meet Jen. Hey, Jen. Hey, Chris. It's early here. I'm, I'm in L.A., so. Yeah. Good. Yeah. yeah. 8.30. <laughs> early Yeah. Morning. Well, for me, you know, I'm a night person, so just having my coffee, but here I am. 
Nice. Thanks so much. All right. Well, let's get started, guys. Um, Chris Smith from Virginia Beer Company, Williamsburg, Virginia. Did I get that right? You got it right. Awesome, man. Welcome to the True Craft Podcast. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here. Very good. Tell us a background on Virginia Beer Company. Sure. Uh, So I met my co-founder and business partner, Robbie, um, when we were both here in Williamsburg attending the College of William and Mary. Um, So that was back in 2005-ish. And, uh, you know, as I turned 21, we started drinking beer at this place called the Greenleaf here in town. It was really the only craft beer bar um, in Williamsburg at the time. And I think as early as about 20, 2009, 2010, we started talking about a brewery is something we would potentially be interested in doing in the future. And uh, we both went off to separate careers. Um, Robbie was up in Washington, D.C. I was in New York City um, and then in Boston. And, you know, I think Robbie was a little happier in his job. I was not enjoying what I was doing at all. Uh, and it just kept coming back to me that craft beer was something I loved and was passionate about and was interested in. And the more we, uh, the more we started visiting breweries together when we'd travel or meet up, I saw it as kind of the exact opposite to what I was doing. I was working for a big financial firm in New York. Um, the objective of my job was pretty much to make rich people richer. Yeah. Um, so it wasn't really for me. And, you know, what I saw at breweries was so different. It was so employee-focused, so community-focused, so customer-focused. And it kind of became an obsession for me and something I really wanted to drive towards. So we made the decision um, in 2011 to open the brewery. And I came back to Williamsburg at the end of 2012, once I left my job. Uh, and it took us a long time to open, a little longer than planned. We, uh, we finally opened actually on March 26, 2016. Uh, so we will be five years old on Friday. Oh, nice. Yeah, in a previous episode, we were joking about how the magic number is two years to open a brewery. It took you guys a little longer, but you definitely you definitely got open. And that that's... That's awesome. Tell us about your equipment stack, your brew house capacity, all that kind of stuff. Sure. Yeah. So we, um, we have about 11,000 square foot of the building here and we custom designed everything for the building once we signed the lease. Uh, so we have a 30 barrel uh, DME brew house as well as a five barrel brew house that um, is fully integrated with all the liquor tanks, um, the grain handling, all that stuff. We have uh, four five-barrel fermenters, two 10-barrel fermenters, six 60-barrel fermenters, uh, and two 90-barrel fermenters. Oh, nice. And 90-barrel uh, bright, two 60-barrel brights. Um, so, yeah, a good mix of equipment. We have our own canning line in-house as well. Um, and it's worked out well to, to kind of, you know, have the production capability of the bigger system as well as the creativity and variety that comes off the smaller system. Did you have the canning line all along, or was this a COVID purchase? Uh, we're one of the, the lucky breweries that actually made this investment uh, maybe a year before, a year and a half. Uh, yeah. We started out mobile canning. So we started canning at the tail end of 2016, used mobile until the fall of 18, um, when we invested in this line. And, you know, like so many breweries, having this year was huge for us um, once last March came around. Sure. How many breweries are in Williamsburg? We actually have, I think five is the number and a couple of them have two locations. I think that's right. Okay. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah. So we have for for you know this <clears throat> the greater Williamsburg area, including the kind of surrounding population, is about one hundred and twenty thousand people. Um, but it's a it's a lot of breweries for a small town. Yeah, definitely. And we, you did mention it's a college town. So you said the college has about six thousand students. Yeah, so it's a college town. It's not a huge, you know, uh, college, but it, it is a big part of the area. Um, but we are close to to Richmond, uh, close to Virginia Beach, so it's it's a sizable population aside from the from the college section of town as well. Cool. Tell us about your packaging splits uh, prior to COVID draft versus can. Sure. So I think about this, I guess, in a few ways. Um, for kind of the wholesale side, domestically, uh, we were about 58% draft, 42% package. Um, and then in the tap room, probably like most breweries, we're about 75% draft, 25% package. Mm-hmm. And we also um, export. It's kind of a unique and different part of our business for, for a smaller brewery. Um, and in that, as you might expect, we're a little higher in package, about 60% package, 40% draft. Oh, where do you export to? We export to the United Kingdom, to the Netherlands, to France, to Japan, and to South Korea. Wow. I didn't know that. Is it uh, continuous or is it usually one-offs? Uh, continuous in some of those markets, continuous in South Korea, Japan, France, Netherlands, actually pretty much all of them. The UK, we, um, we previously worked with an importer who are no longer in business. Uh, so we, we work with a company right now called Beer 52 that is a direct-to-consumer um, subscriber model. Uh, so those are kind of um, one-off projects, but we do them pretty regularly with them. And mm-hmm. we're, we're working on a, a new um, import agreement with a, with a different importer right now. That's awesome. I'm curious, what styles do you send to export? <laughs> it's a good question. Um, the, the interesting thing we've, you know, that we found out when we started getting into export was um, that everyone, no matter where you're in the world, wants the same thing, which is a hazy, juicy IPA. Oh. Um, the problem with that, is, as you know, probably is that... Um, those are the least shelf stable of, of the beers that we make, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, now we do work with importers who are cold chain. We do from for once in a while, we'll do some air freight. So we do send those types of beers to export, but, but it really does vary. Um, and it varies by market. We like sending sours because we know ours are very shelf stable. Um, Imperial stouts, those kind of things, they do really mm-hmm. well. We do, we do some Brett beers here. Um, and those actually have great appeal in some of our export markets and they're the best beers to, for, for transport and sitting on a shelf for a little while. Yeah, definitely. I've learned a lot about export by attending CBC and sitting in those export meetings or the conferences, the sessions. And it was interesting, Sweden, you hear, you know, once you get selected in the, in the Sweden system, it's, it's pretty much a huge order and then potentially many, many huge orders and one thing I learned when you send beer to Sweden that they don't stock it cold and it's got to be shelf stable. And, and the idea with that is, is it's a responsibility move, right? They want people to buy the beer, take it home, chill it, and then drink it versus, you know, drinking it immediately once, once they leave the store. So uh, that was really interesting to learn uh, from, from one of the sessions that I attended, I don't know how many years ago, but yeah, the, the export model. Some of our some of our customers do export. Uh, the majority don't. 
Um, so it's interesting that you guys are having so much success with it. I, I need to think more about that. Yeah. I mean, it's different. It was actually in our original business plan. Um, my background is in, in my family's all international. Uh, they don't live here in the, in the States. Uh, so it's something I've, I've always wanted to do. And it took us a while to get into it. Um, just, we, we met with some representatives from the, um, uh, from the Commonwealth of Virginia. They have great programs here to help with export. And um, what we realized from that, this was in 2016, was that we just weren't ready from a beer quality standpoint. We didn't have the lab equipment um, to make sure that beer we were sending to Japan um, would be as good you know, as it is here in the taproom when you buy it. So we didn't actually get into it till about 2018. Um, but it's been great for us. And you know, especially last year, having the diversification, obviously the pandemic's affected the whole world, but it, it sort of affected the whole world at different times in, in some countries like Japan to a lesser extent. Um, so mm-hmm. our, our export business actually was 17% of our volume last year, um, wow. which is crazy. Never expected that. It won't be that this year, um, but it was really good to have a, a different uh, revenue stream and a way to keep our tanks full when you know we didn't need as much beer here domestically. Tell, talk to me about uh, support. Talk to me about market support. Do you guys go and visit these markets or do you leave it to the importer, distributor to handle all that kind of stuff? Uh, no, we, we go. Um, well, unfortunately not since last March. Um, obviously the importer has the bulk of the work in terms of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, like I mentioned, Virginia has amazing programs that help with travel um, so we are in market whenever we can be there. Um, you know, some markets are easier than others, obviously being in the UK or France is no big deal. Um, I was in Italy last February and then we were in the UK for a beer festival in early March. Um, just snuck those in. We we're in Japan in Tokyo the November before. Um, we haven't been to Seoul yet. We were actually supposed to go to Seoul, um, to South Korea last March. Um, obviously that didn't happen, but yeah, we're in market as much as we can be. I think those, what we learned with export is that the face-to-face interactions, even if it's just with your importer, uh, lead to so much more success. And there's so much more trust in the relationship when you're face-to-face as often as possible. Mm -hmm. Um, we've had, Virginia has brought some of our importers here as well. So they've been to the brewery. It's a, I think it's a different relationship when they've been here and seen what we do in person and we've been there to see, you know, the challenges of, of what they do um, and to see how they handle our beer and, and be able to appreciate that. So, yeah, we, uh, we try to support from afar with marketing dollars and then we, we support in person whenever we can. We're looking forward to, uh, to getting back to doing that whenever that's possible. Sure. That's awesome, dude. I, I think that's, that's great that you're, you're supporting the market. I think breweries that, send stuff abroad uh one off don't have that opportunity and i do think the the relationship is 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 hurt over that and the potential for for you know reorders or whatever it may be is is not as um not as readily available so that's great that you guys are are supporting those to the best of your ability um Today, so today's topic is the rebirth of draft, and I want to kind of know, like, what what did COVID do to your draft business? Sure, yeah. I mean, we took a, a major hit, um, as did most. So I 
like I said, in 2019, domestically, we were about 58% draft, 42 package. Mm -hmm. Uh, We ended 2020, 35% draft, 65 package. So a big hit, but actually not quite as bad. We were down about 46% um, for the calendar year in terms of the volume. You know, it it was much worse to start for Q1 of 20 versus 19, we were only down 15%. Q2 is where it really hit for everybody. You know, we were down 88% um, from Q2 20 or from mm-hmm. Q2 19. And then we were down about 30% for Q3 and Q4. Um, so it, it definitely did some damage. And, you know, uh, package sales being much lower margin than draft sales for us, um, from a bottom line perspective, it really hurt. Mm-hmm. So the 35% draft during 2020, was that in wholesale or are you blending that with the tap room as well? That's just wholesale. That's wholesale. Okay. So, so that's, that's incredible because most of the people I talked to went from, if they were at 58% draft, they would be down at like down to 2% draft. Uh, so where was this draft beer going last year? So we, yeah. Well, it's interesting what happened in our market, and this I think is a little bit market specific. But um, we, what we saw was any any sales uh, wrap sales folks in the market, they were all pulled out of the market, right? Which which we did too um, mm-hmm. for safety reasons. Um, but when you know when it was when the restrictions were loosened a little bit, and it felt like it's a little safer to be out there, um, our our sales team was was out there a little bit in a safe way a responsible way mm-hmm. and no one else was and um, distributors didn't have any draft stock they had nothing yep. so basically we easily managed to hold lines that we had when when establishments started to reopen but then there were these extra handles and you know in a place where you'd have one handle or maybe one in a rotator um, we'd be able to snag two solid handles maybe three just because they were desperate for product on the lines and, and no one had anything to offer them. And we had, we had people out there and, and, you know, bars and restaurants appreciated seeing somebody, you know, how are you doing? How's it going? Um, you know, our sales team took beer with them everywhere they went and dropped it off everywhere. Just, you know, mm-hmm. six packs of samples just to say, you know, we're feeling bad for you guys. Uh, you know, we've missed you all those things. So I, I, Definitely think we were we were pretty lucky in uh, in the draft we were able to maintain in 2020. Well, I think it's great that you guys kept your your sales system going because I think that uh, a number of breweries either repurposed their sales team or shrunk it, given the fact that the restrictions uh, were out there as far as visits and and safety concerns. But the fact that you're able to maintain it is is incredible, and I did hear last year during spurts of the country reopening and then closing again, that distributors were very low on draft inventory from big beer all the way down, down to craft. And a couple of our contacts and, and, and customers did take advantage of that. Uh, it sounds like to me, you guys were super successful at, at capitalizing on that. Yeah, it was lucky. I mean, and you know, beyond being lucky, I suppose we have a, we have a dynamite sales team. Yeah, uh, who knew how to how to handle the situation professionally? Um, you know, you don't want to push too hard on on restaurants and bars that were that are 
were and are struggling so much. Um, so to, to, I think to do it in the right way and approach with the right tone uh, was important. And our team certainly did that. That's awesome, man. Tell us about, so Cooperage was a big thing last year. And, and I know a lot of breweries that lease their own Cooperage. They were offered the opportunity to break the lease or put the lease on hold. And at any time they could, they could either, actually most of them went to paper fill, which we both know is extremely expensive. <laughs> and others yeah. were told, Hey, when you're ready, just let us know how many, how many kegs you need and we'll get the lease back. We'll rework the negotiations. Tell us about your Cooperage fleet and how you guys manage that. Sure. Um, so we've actually dabbled in, in all three of the main methods, I'd say. When we opened, um, we took out a $100,000 loan and bought uh, a fleet of our own kegs. Mm-hmm. Um, and we, we used those. Uh, we bought a few more, maybe a year in. And then a couple years in, we were in a little crunch in the summer, as, as happens with breweries, and we leased some kegs. So that was our foray into the second method. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we actually made the decision in 2019 to switch to the paper fill model, which I agree with you is enormously expensive. Um, and it can be argued, you know, which one of these methods is best. I think it depends on, on the specific brewery in some cases and what your, what your business is. But we didn't want to continue the capital outlay for purchasing our kegs. It's a real struggle with distributors to get them back even locally. And what we saw for our business was um, territory expansion. So we, um, we thought that for us, um, it would make a little more sense to go to that paper fill model cost on our packaging, uh, which is something that we really struggled to come up with, with our own fleet in particular. And um, for us, the, the leasing, there were a lot of drawbacks to, to the leasing that we didn't um, particularly know about, I guess, when we started leasing. And then when we tried to end a lease, um, it just made us put a bad taste in it. Sure. So it, did I hear you correct in saying that you converted your entire fleet? Well, so we actually, go ahead, Chris. So we were actually, um, and I'm amazed at the residual value uh, on the kegs. So yeah, we've almost, we've almost, Sold the entire. Chris, I don't know if you can hear me, but we're getting a lot of choppiness on your end, or I don't know if it's my end or what. But uh, yeah, yeah, that's a lot better. Go ahead and and repeat what you just said about the the switch from the two methods to paper fill. Sure. Um, So we decided to uh, to make the switch to entirely paper fill. So we would have a, um, a pretty good grasp on our packaging costs. And we, we knew territory expansion was in our future. Um, and the thought of trying to deal with a fleet that's further flung than our local distribution um, seemed like a bit of a nightmare. So mm-hmm. we, we, we made the decision to sell our whole fleet and, uh, and move to the paper fill model. Wow, that's, that's great. And, and you, you've highlighted everything that goes through my mind when you are deciding on, on Cooperage, right? 
the the lease model is quick and convenient. However, when you look at the long term, it's it's quite costly. The capital outlay to purchase your own cooperage is huge. And then the always always trying to within those two models, trying to figure out what your actual cost per fill is is almost impossible. And the reason is, is you don't know how many turns you're going to get on that keg. You may be paying X dollars per month for a lease. Are you going to turn that keg once a month, once every two months, twice a month? So it's hard to really nail that that cost per, per keg down, which with the paper fill model, you know exactly how much it's costing, you know exactly how much the liquid costs, the labor, and you can begin to work backwards from there. So that's pretty interesting that you guys moved to that. Uh, talk about your distribution now. Are you, how far does it reach? So um, aside from our, our export business, we're in Virginia with one exception. Um, so we, our first few years, we were just in the, what we call the Hampton Roads region of Virginia. So basically between where we are in Williamsburg and Virginia Beach. Um, two years in, we entered the Richmond market. So the kind of the capital region, central Virginia. And then actually, more recently, this past summer, we entered the Northern Virginia market, package only, given Mm -hmm. what was happening. And just last month, the Western side of Virginia. So we basically distribute statewide in Virginia at this point. The one exception is, um, oddly enough, New York City and New York State, um, where we work with a a newer distributor that is a mix of a, it's kind of a blend of a traditional distributor as well as a direct consumer e-commerce website oh cool um, and we do and we do send draft up there as well interesting very cool all right so at the time of this recording we're closing in on q1 of 2021 what are your what are you seeing right now regarding draft and is it coming back is it still as it was in q4 of 2020 Tell us what you're seeing in your home market, in your home state. In our in our home market, it's it is coming back. Um, and you know, I, I argued with our sales team about this in in February. They're eternally optimistic, which I think you, maybe you have to be <laughs> to be a, a great salesperson. Uh, and I might be a little bit of the opposite. So they kept telling me, you know, we we need more draft. We need more draft. And it's you know, this whole thing, aside from everything else that's happened, has made forecasting for packaging nearly impossible. Um, you just don't know what's happening, but, um, but we've seen a, a, a pretty solid uptick in the last um, month, I'd say mm-hmm. uh, for the year, for the year right now, we're at about uh, 42% draft in terms of volume, 58% package in the wholesale versus 35, 65 last year. Um, and that's with a package launch package only launch in the Western side of Virginia. So it's, it's absolutely coming back. Um, with the warmer weather in particular, and I, I'm surprised um, at how quickly it's coming back. Sure. Let's say we get to Q3 and the vaccines have proven to be very effective and places are open at 100%. Do you guys foresee yourself staying in the paper fill keg model or is there a chance you'll switch back? I think we'll likely stay in the paper fill um, keg model. Um, it, I, I know it's, I know it's hugely expensive. Um, we know that, but we can make it work with where we are 
on our FOBs for draft in this market. Um, mm-hmm. And we're still competitive and we get the margin that we're looking for. Um, it gives us the flexibility to send beer to New York City, draft beer to New York City and not worry about the cooperage. Right. Um, and even, we haven't done it yet, but even in export, um, we, use, we use one-way kegs right now, but um, we can send these, these kegs into export markets. And one-way kegs are incredibly expensive. So um, honestly, the cost is, is pretty similar. And then, you know, the other thing about leasing or, or owning is that you, you have to go with a certain mix of kegs and, and that's your mix that you own or lease for a term. And if you went with too many half barrels and not enough six tools or the opposite, you can be in a, in a tough spot. The, one of the nice things about paper fill is that I can place an order any single, any day and adjust our mix. Um, so there's a lot of flexibility in it. Yeah. That's great. Well, I, I know your your finance background pretty well. You, you and I have talked a number of times. And so I'm, I'm actually starting to change my tone on on paper fill kegs because I, I definitely would trust you've crunk, crunched the numbers and you, you've you laid out a a number of pros for, for paper fills. And the really only the con is the, the price. But if you can work back into the margin and can secure an FOB high enough to where everything makes sense. It's a, it's a really good solution. Yeah. And I, I honestly, the, the other thing I've failed to mention so far is storage. Right. Um, we were, we were having a problem with, with the size of our, of our keg, keg fleet and where to put it. Um, especially, you know, we have, at least in our market, it's pretty seasonal here in terms of, in terms of beer. Mm-hmm. So um, we solved that with paper fill because we just, we have a keg cage and we just, basically keep it full every time you know we can forecast how many kegs we're going to use in the next four weeks we just place an order for that many kegs at the mix we expect we'll need and and uh, no storage issues that's cool man (laughs) there's another there is another yet pro for for paper fill kegs so you're you're converting me right here on this episode Chris. (laughs) happy to hear it i'm gonna i'm gonna let the paper fill companies know they owe me a little little uh (laughs) little money on this yeah definitely Definitely. I mean, look, man, at the end of the day, when we're able to, when we run our margin analysis, it is very easy to look at the paper fill model versus when we, when, when we're not using paper fill, we don't include keg costs in there or we will include a keg factor, but it's, it's arbitrary based on what we think is going to be the number of turns on that, on that keg versus knowing exactly the cost and being able to pin it back to a margin. It's, it's huge. And, and you've laid out so many intangibles that in addition to the margin, that that's, that's great, man. This is, I'm learning a lot today. So I, I love that. Yeah, no, it's, it's been great. I love knowing what our costs are. I could, like you said, that I didn't know what they were before. I couldn't really tell you um, and sure. to have something that's just kind of out there and, and maybe it's this, maybe it's that that's not great. You know, you don't really know your margin and uh, we can at least know that now, even if it's a touch, um, less than sure. what, what it might be otherwise. Sure. Uh, let's talk about where craft is going to sit once draft reopens and there's the rebirth. Do you believe that craft beers are going to be snubbed out of tap lines or are we going to get a fair shot? I think we're going to get a fair shot and that's, but you know, that's probably market specific. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do feel like we've gotten a fair shot. 
uh, I think for the general, the average craft consumer has uh, more money than they had a year and a half ago. Um, yeah, there are all kinds of issues with that that we could talk about. Sure. But um, I think I think there the spending power is there, and once vaccines roll out and restrictions loosen and people feel safer being out and about, I think people will be willing um, to spend the money on craft, and I think establishments will respond to that and and maintain basically what we were seeing. I think beforehand, where craft was doing really well. Um, for us, and you know, I know we're talking about draft, but the, the bigger concern I think is on the package side with what we're seeing, you know, we just went through or we're going through spring resets right now in grocery and, and big retail. And so much of the shelf space is being lost for craft um, to seltzer in particular, mm-hmm. but, but just generally out of the craft segment and into, in, into other segments. So I, for us, that's the, that's the bigger danger we see moving forward. Yeah. Yes. Speaking of the package and the, we, we talked about the aluminum crisis last season, a bunch, and we were talking about whether breweries should have gotten a contract or whether they should have just hunted for cans. I put out some, some articles on it and it's really turning up that there are cans that are available. You know, breweries can get their hands on cans if they really want to right now. Are you seeing that same sediment where you are? Yeah, we are. Um, we have kind of a, a, a problem of our own making in that our core beers that are in 12-ounce cans in grocery and convenience are, um, are in sleeved cans. And as you well know, that's an absolute margin killer. Mm-hmm. Um, but in the year and a half ago, when we were trying to convert to printed cans, uh, we were in discussions and then uh, everybody stopped taking new clients, basically. Right. Um, so that's a problem of our own making, I suppose, but, um, but so that's, I think that's one issue right now, getting it, getting from sleeved or labeled to print it is tough. Um, as a small buyer, but you know, on this, we use six, plenty of 16 ounce brights and it's harder to get them than it was a year and a half ago, but it's not impossible. Um, a couple cents more, a little more legwork, but, mm-hmm. but they are available. So yeah, it's not, hasn't been as scary, I guess, from that perspective as, as it was made out to be. Cool. All right. So we're closing in on the end of this episode. Tell us about your 2021 predictions, if you have any. 2021 predictions. Um, I think it's, it's hard. The prediction game can be hard, especially with, with what we've, you know, the world has been through in the past 12 months. But um, right. I think in the best case, we'll see a, um, a really solid return of, of draft beer. Um, probably not to 2019 the peak of 2019 i'd say um but you know for us if we were 58 percent draft 42 percent package in 2019 i would love to see us get close to 50 50 um so i I think draft will come back i think it will be craft focused Um, i think there'll be a success story there you know people are reporting their local restaurants and bars and and that will help yep um, e-commerce, I think, will continue to grow. I mean, it got such a shot in the arm in the past year, specifically uh, for beer. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and what we've seen here, you know, we, we sell via our own e-commerce site in New York City uh, with e-commerce. 
Uh, I expect that'll continue to grow. Obviously not at the same, um, you know, rate that it did last year. Um, and then package, I think we have that, that problem of, uh, of craft just losing, losing share. So that for me is the, the, you know, the big warning overall, but I guess I'm hopeful. And if you ask anyone who worked here at the brewery, I'm, I'm, as I mentioned earlier, not the most optimistic person in general, oh, yeah. um, but, uh, but oddly enough, I'm, I'm hopeful for what the rest of the year holds um, for us, for craft beer, for, for restaurants and bars, you know, our, our, our partners. And um, yeah, I think we're barring any major changes. We're going to, we're going to be on the up and up. Awesome, man. Well, hey, man, where can we learn more about Virginia Beer Co. and what you guys are doing? Well, thanks for asking. Yeah, um, actually launching a new website probably right at the end of this week, a little five-year anniversary present to ourselves. Uh, so www.virginiabeerco.com and then all over Instagram and Twitter at Virginia Beer Co. Mm-hmm. and Facebook as well. Yeah, I have a feeling this episode is going to spark some interest with this exporting. You may you may get an email or a, is there is there somewhere on the website where they can contact a, a general email and and maybe someone can route that to you? Yeah, it'll be on there. Uh, I think probably info at virginiabeerco.com. Uh, I'm on that. You know, we're a small company of 18 people, so I still get every email for better or yeah. worse. Uh, but yeah, happy to talk about export anytime. I'm a big proponent. I love it. One of my favorite topics. Wow. Good. I think a lot of people would enjoy that, man. Sweet, Chris. Well, I appreciate you joining us today, man. It's been a a very good episode. Oh, thanks. Thanks for having me. Really appreciate it. Yep. Talk to you soon. All right. Bye, Chris. Bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of the True Craft Podcast. Links to cool information about our guests and other fun facts can be found in the show notes. This podcast is sponsored by Small Batch Standard. Small Batch Standard is the premier financial agency built to serve the craft brewing industry. We help craft breweries grow profits through outsourced accounting, tax planning and filing, and growth consulting. Visit sbstandard.com today to learn more and request a discovery call. See ya!